You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We'll continue in our teaching through the Gospel of Mark and chapter 9. If you want to follow along with us, we'll be reading from chapter 9, starting in verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is God's word. You know, one thing that this passage can really tell us is to teach us how to follow Jesus, how to walk with him. And it could show us this, that, that walking with Jesus is like a journey. In fact, that's literally what is happening here. Jesus is on a journey with his closest disciples. He is taking a journey with them and going from town to town. And along the way, he's teaching them. And he's actually intending to keep out of uh, the public and keep out of crowds so that he can have some special time to really teach them and to talk with them. And so Mark does something really interesting here for us. He invites us to walk along and to kind of put ourselves in this journey as if we were there listening to Jesus and hearing him ask questions and hearing, uh, seeing the under, misunderstanding of the disciples and the challenges that come their way. We get to hear the questions that Jesus asks and we get to enter into the confusion of the disciples. We get to watch how Jesus finds different points of interaction with the disciples how he converses with them and argues with them, teaches them, clarifies, encourages, even finds places to, to warn them and to remind them. And again, Mark points us uh, to Jesus and how he teaches, and yet again, they lack understanding. We've seen this already a few times. Learning how to live daily with Jesus and to walk daily with him is probably one of the hardest skills and practices that we will ever face. It's easy to imagine that the purpose of following Jesus is for moral self-improvement, to be a better person, to be that image of ourself that we really desire, and we hope that Jesus, with walking with him, that we can actually be that kind of person. But is that why we follow Jesus? Is that why he's invited us into this, this journey? Because there are weaknesses in ourselves and Jesus just wants to make us better. And that's not why he invites us to journey with him. We follow Jesus so that we would be 
increasingly connected and bonded and joined to Jesus, who willingly walks with us and gives his life for us. I wonder if Mark is wanting us to feel bad for the disciples here. I mean, three times in three chapters, Jesus talks about what we must do to to know him and what he must have done to him in order for us to be forgiven of sins. Three times he tells them in three chapters, I tell you, I have to be rejected, I have to suffer, I must die, and I must rise again. And they are left confused. I wonder, though, if we should look at ourselves, too, and ask ourselves if, if we're often confused by what Jesus has to say, or even the meaning of what he is trying to say to us, that he must suffer and die, that he must be killed, and he must rise again. What, if anything, could Jesus be trying to teach us today, trying to teach you today? It's clear that the disciples have a lot to learn for what it means to walk with Jesus and to know him, to be on this journey of faith with him. And there's no doubt that we have a lot to learn as well. And a sign that we lack understanding and can be just like the disciples is that we, we struggle often with the same stumbling blocks that Jesus points out in this passage. When it comes to walking with Jesus in the journey of daily life, Jesus exposes three stumbling blocks that hinder his purposes for us. These three stumbling blocks are are these, and you'll likely see a theme as I say them. Self-importance, self-reliance, and self-protection. Notice the prefix behind every one of these. It's the self. It's a stumbling block of putting ourselves first and and, uh, focusing on ourselves. It's this obsession with ourselves and not the glory and purposes of Christ in our life. A life centered around the self will always be a life that is disconnected from Jesus and a life that often will misunderstand what he's attempting to do in us and through us. Let's look first at this first self, the self-importance. Self-importance is a stumbling block to understanding Christ and allowing God to have his way with us because we are consumed with our status among other people. It is this mentality of what's in it for me. Look at verse 33 to 34. And they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent, of course. Jesus still knew for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So imagine this as Jesus is walking with them talking with them and teaching them and avoiding crowds so that he can get some good quality time with them. He is talking to them about how he must do certain things. He must suffer, die, and rise again in order to accomplish all that he desires in us. And his disciples are literally arguing with one another. When this happens, I wonder, which of us are going to be the most important? Which of us will be most prestigious? They're thinking about Jesus' work and how Jesus' work will only enhance their self-worth, their sense of self-worth and their glory. Self-importance is one of those things that is so highly prized today. Maybe one of the top idols of our culture, status, accomplishments. When it comes to worldly value, there's a high priority 
on what we accomplish and what we accumulate in our life. And this idol creeps into our spiritual life as well. So much so that we, we measure, or we can tend to measure, our spiritual growth by what we accomplish, by how important we are to others, by how many people follow us or have nice things to say about us. And for the disciples, this led to an argument about their status when Jesus is made king. We do it too. We look at the gospel and we look at the benefits of God's grace in our life and we tend to believe that Jesus exists only to make us feel good about ourselves. That he exists and all that he desires to do is to make us feel sense of self-worth and importance. So certainly Jesus must have felt disappointed and frustrated with them for worrying about their own status as Jesus is trying to talk to them about the, the lengths that he must go through in order to rescue them from their own sin. Here are some diagnostic questions of self-importance if you're wondering what they might feel like for you. Do you tend to be addicted to busyness at the expense of deep relationship with others? Do you tend to focus more on making sure people respect you than on your sense of responsibility to others? Do you tend to exaggerate your achievements and talents so that others will take notice of you? Do you tend to insist on having the best of everything? For instance, the best car, the best house, the best clothes. Do you tend to crave the attention and compliments of others on social media, at work, or with friends? Do you feel this this idol, this craving inside of you when you know that it's, it's beyond a healthy point of always needing to be the center of attention where all roads lead to you. You see, the disciples felt these very same things in their hearts and they're arguing with one another. The, wor- the word means that they are having this discourse where evidence and arguments are made back and forth. They're really sharing resumes. They're comparing talents. They're they're. they're Comparing and contrasting their appearances and skills and personalities and maybe even uh, thinking back to the attention that Jesus has given to each of them and saying, well, he seems to spend more time with me and, and seems to pull me aside and teach me this and he likes me the most. Our world is filled with discussions of greatness and comparing, isn't it? Who is the greatest nation and why? Who's the greatest athlete of all time? Who's the greatest singer? Well, there's nothing wrong with the desire for greatness, but Jesus doesn't, and Jesus doesn't rebuke them for greatness. He doesn't say, stop craving to be important. But rather, he challenges their understanding and path to what it means to be important, to what it means to be great in God's eyes. Our world determines this greatness based on this value system of one person's merits compared to another's. Comparison of deeds and habits and points and albums sold and the fastest runner, whatever it is, greatness is determined based on merit. And Jesus is turning this upside down. You know, as a child, I never dreamed of being a baseball player with a respectable batting average, or being a pretty good athlete, a utility player that can kind of play anywhere, that just did what I could to help out the team and maybe get a win every once in a while. Of course not. 
I remember laying awake at night and even times of dreams and having these vivid dreams of what? Of hitting the winning, the game-winning home run, of running into home plate, having the team hoist me up on their shoulders, carry me off the field, having a bronze statue of, of, of my likeness put in front of the stadium for all to remember how great I was. That's what we dream about, right? None of us dream of just being a good, solid base hit hitter. No one dreams of just being a, a singer that no one will ever recognize or an artist whose work will never get recognition. I want my name in the paper. You want people to know you're important. We crave this in our life. We want to know that our life counts for something. And the way that we go about determining that is by comparing our merits to the merits of others. But Jesus challenges his disciples in his response. Notice how he responds in verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You see, when Jesus said this, he took the value system of the world that bases our importance on our merits. He turns it upside down. And as we've seen through the teaching of Jesus all throughout the New Testament, if you want to live and to find your life, you must die. You must lose your life for my sake. If you want to be first, you must be last. If you want the riches in heaven, you must become poor in spirit. If you want to be satisfied, you must be hungry for righteousness. You see, if we want importance and greatness to feel that our life matters for something and that it counts, what must we do? We must not take the posture of a successful king who conquers realms within our life of work and family and society and wealth, but we must take the posture of, of a servant. Because it's in this posture of a servant that Jesus comes. And we see the love of God poured out for us, not in a conquering king, but as a dying servant going to the cross to rescue us. Greatness in God's economy, in God's eyes, is not reserved for the, the gifted or the, the privileged, but for those who imitate the humility and self-giving love of Jesus. In the next important object lesson, Jesus reveals another stumbling block we often trip over when following him, and it's this, the stumbling block of self-reliance. Do you see what he does here to demonstrate this? He takes a child, puts it in the midst of the, of the disciples, and then holds this child in his arms and says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. I want you to try to wipe away every idea that you have of, you know, this 21st century uh, Western idea of babies today, right? Babies are considered adorable. Everything they do, they just really sit around and are celebrated. Every sound they make, every movement they make is just met with applause and, and hoorays and cheers and every little thing that they do. We think they make a sound and we have a party for them. We are mistaken if we think this is how babies were viewed in the ancient world. With the mortality rate so high, 
for young children. You couldn't emotionally afford to have such sentimentality for infants and young children. Children were viewed as little and insignificant and powerless. They had no power and prestige. They had no reason to boast, for they had accomplished nothing of great value. Their parents had no reason to celebrate them. No three-month-old photo shoots or uh, first-year birthday parties where the whole town is, is, is invited. None of that would happen. But what is Jesus' point by taking this small child, putting this child in his arms? It's that if anyone would desire to, to walk with Jesus, to know him, to, to, um, to associate with him and to follow him daily, they must rest not on their own ability and their own prestige or accomplishments, for they had, like this child, accomplished nothing yet, but they must rely on the special welcome and grace of God, the special invitation and welcoming of God. Again, not a popular value in our society today, self-reliance. Too often prestige and honor come to those who are able to look at their problems, to consider their challenges in life, and to have it within themselves to, to make it better, right? The value of our world is the the go-getter, the do-gooder, the one who can do uh, the right thing without, and here's the key point, without anyone's help. It's easy to see this as possibly a guy-only struggle, but I assure you it's not just for men. Men and women alike love being asked to help. We love to be asked to, to support and to come alongside and to assist and to to lead, but we often, both men and women, struggle with asking for help when we are hurting, for fear of feeling shame and seeing in the eyes of other people that we are incapable. And the reason that we're asking for help and coming to another person and say, I'm sorry, can you help me with this? That they will then look in themselves and say, why? Because you're incapable of doing it yourself? You're, you're, you're too dumb? You're too, too un important, that you need to rely on someone else. And we're traumatized by that. Men and women both love to receive gifts and favors from others, but we might feel a sense of need to pay them back because we don't want to be in anyone's debt. We don't ever want to receive a favor from another person. And if somebody does good to you, then you have to do good to them so as not to seem like you're a person who just receives without giving anything in return. Men and women struggle with being honest about how we're really doing for the fear of burdening anyone with our troubles or being seen as overly needy and insecure. Well, you see, we all do these things, and that's just another form of self-reliance, isn't it? It's believing the lie that we are received into fellowship and friendship with others based on what we can offer them. And Jesus needs to correct this lie that we believe that we believe when it comes to a relationship with him. We are not welcomed into fellowship with Jesus because of what we bring. In fact, Jesus uses this word four times in verse 37. You can't miss it. It's the word receive. You must come receiving, you must receive, you must open your hands, admit your need, your insignificance like this child who has yet to accomplish any good, any merit of, of, of being accepted, 
Nothing good has come from this child. And God takes us in his arms before we have ever done anything to give him a reason to do so. We have never offered anything like an infant. We have never offered anything. Of course, we offer cuteness and uh, companionship, but this one-way dependency that we need from God, need of God, we depend wholeheartedly on him. In a sense, and I think this would have been shocking for the disciples to see Jesus do this, Jesus is saying when it comes to your access to God and ability to deal with your own problems and challenges in life, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, special about you. You So many have thought that being close to Jesus through spiritual discipline and obedience to the law, or even working full-time in ministry, made themselves somehow special. Well, I've been a Christian since I was six, or I go to church every week, and I always have the right answer. I know where to find that, that verse in the Bible. And so we feel a sense of, God, look at the things I've accomplished for you. Look at the things that I have done, as if to think that God would then look down on us, or look upon us, keeping into account all of those good things and say, that's why you're special. That's why you're good. But he doesn't. He looks at us like an infant who has yet to offer anything of value. And he takes us in his arms. Jesus tells the story of the tax collector and Pharisee recorded in the Gospel of Luke. You can look there, Luke chapter 18. He tells it this way. Two men went up into the temple to pray And one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, when this sinner says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, he could have easily have said, have mercy on me, a child. Insignificant, missing the mark on all of these virtues that this man can claim. All of these wonderful deeds And I am completely reliant on what? Your mercy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus means to point out that true spiritual maturity does not depend on our ability to deal with our problems, but our willingness to embrace the self-giving love of God in Jesus Christ. We are not to follow Jesus in the posture of a self-reliant disciple, but a needy child. Don't you see this? Do you see these marks of self-reliance in, your, in, in you? Where you, you want to be that person that knows how to do and find and get everything. You want to be the person that never lets anyone down. Well, you have let them down. You have let God down in a sense of doing and obeying all that he has said. And so our only hope is to come to him as a child. 
so that he can receive us in his arms. Mark moves quickly to the next stumbling block and finally the one that Jesus uncovers. And this stumbling block is self-protection. It's a little easier to spot, I think. You see it in verses 38 to 41. Do you want to read that again? Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because we were not, he was not following us. But Jesus said, don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon, soon afterward to speak evil of me. So John sees something here. John, a disciple, he looks upon these other disciples, not a part of their little club, and these disciples are doing something amazing, first of all. They're casting out demons. So they're performing miracles in the name of Christ. And John tries to stop them because, he says, they were not part of us. They weren't following us. He may be well-intended, but he's doing something that Jesus rebukes. This really reveals a spirit of pride and self-protection. You may tend to keep others at arm's length to protect your reputation from being hurt. Maybe associating with somebody or an organization or a, a, a certain uh, person or idea or philosophy. You're thinking, I don't, know, I don't want people to, to think differently of me. I don't want them to, to think ill of me. What you're doing is you're protecting your ego. You're protecting your reputation. You might measure your spiritual growth or maturity based on what accolades you receive from other people. You see, if you receive a lot of accolades, a lot of praise, a lot of great job, or that a boy, or that a girl, you think, well, I am I'm doing something right. I'm an, I, I have a lot of self-worth. Maybe the greatest way that many of us of, are, are given to self-protect is by avoiding conflict. Think about this. Avoiding conflict might give the impression that you are a person that is just a peacemaker. And you may be that. But it can often disguise itself for one being addicted to the approval of others for our own protection. I need to be at peace because if I am not, what will they think of me? Well, Jesus says in very simple terms that all Christians must avoid building walls between believers, and recognize our essential unity with all who claim the name of Christ. How does self-protection hinder us from hearing from God and walking in his purposes for us? Well, we must appreciate the embrace, that we must appreciate and embrace authentic Christianity, authentic biblical Christianity wherever we see it. We must distance ourselves from false teaching, even if it's within our own church or our own small group. We need discernment is what we need. We need discernment when it comes to following Jesus. And so if we are just in self-protection mode, right, this is, this is what I believe, this is what my church believes, and I'm not going to think any other different way. This is what my political party believes, and I'm not going to think any different way. Why? We're trying to protect ourselves. Jesus says we need discernment that doesn't match our own ideas, but matches his name, his truth, his mind. Let me draw your attention to even weightier matter than that. Look closely at what John says again. He says, we tried to stop him because he was, now look at this, he was not following us. 
Do you see how ironic this is? Jesus literally got done teaching and traveling with them about how the kingdom of God is not about us. That it is not about our ability. If anything that we desire to receive from him, it must come from him as an act of his mercy. We are like children. It's not about our fame. It's not about our glory. Not about our importance or who is the greatest. And here John immediately feels entitled to some recognition and privilege because of who he is and who he associates with. It's just another echo in Scripture of how easy it is for us to become so self-absorbed without even realizing it. You might not even realize how self-absorbed you are. And Jesus follows up with the meaning of his great mission. And here it is. This, all of this, everything that I am doing is not about you. All of this, the miracles, the peace, my life, my death, my resurrection, it is not primarily for your recognition, for your esteem, for your privilege. It is about me. It is about Jesus. He says, no one who does good in my name will speak evil of me. He's turning it back on himself. He says, don't worry about you and people not following you. They're never following you. They're following me. And if anyone follows me and does anything in my name, that glorifies me. No evil will come to me. It glorifies me. It's not about us. It's not about us. Our very lives are not about us. Our accomplishments are not about us. The accolades that people give us, it's ultimately not about us. It could easily turn downward into our hearts and become twisted to puff us up in pride. But it should be turned back to God, our creator, who is worthy of all praise. Remember, we follow Jesus not so that all the things we don't like about ourselves will be better, but so that, we, so that he would get the praise and the glory. We walk with Jesus every day so that we would be increasingly connected and bonded and joined to Jesus who willingly walks with us and gives himself up for us. How is this possible? How is this possible that we, like children coming needy with no importance in ourself, come and be held in the arms of a God who loves us? How can we be joined with Jesus and walk with him in this journey of life in faith with his peace and with his steadfast love? Not by our importance, not by our accomplishments or how we protect ourselves, but in the most unlikely way. And Jesus reminds us. Jesus came not to be served, but to die, to give his life. You see, the reason Jesus came was not to claim his rights, but to give up his rights for us. Not to keep himself, but to give himself. Don't you see? The only way for us to become important, for our life to matter, for us to be truly great, is not if we become someone who counts, but if someone who truly counts gives himself for us. It is Jesus 
Someone who is willing to love us. Someone who is truly important is willing to give up their importance for us. Someone who is in the protection, enjoying the protection of heaven, the glory of heaven, is willing to empty himself of that importance and all of that that glory for us. Someone like Jesus. Someone who is Jesus. And that is what he does. It is because the one who is all important became a servant. The one who deserved to be treated like a king became a servant. The one who was all sufficient became a child. A little child, a literal child born like us, helpless, needing to eat at the, from the love of his mother, leading, needing to be protected by his parents, needing to be kept warm in the cold and given drink when he was thirsty. And it's because the one who was eternally protected gave himself over to a life of suffering, rejection, and grief and death that all this is possible. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us, for you.